great to see everybody here. It's good to be together to worship God. Some words from the letter to the Hebrews. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we have a great high priest who has gone into the very presence of God, Jesus, the Son of God. Our high priest is not one who cannot feel sympathy for our weaknesses. On the contrary, we have a high priest who was tempted in every way that we are, but did not sin. Let us have confidence then and approach God's throne where there is grace. There we will receive mercy and find grace to help us just when we need it. And let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. God of grace, we come to you now to tell you that we love you. We know that words are easy to say and not so easy to live. You know that we find it hard to express, to some, to express love to someone we cannot see or touch. Help us to be aware of your presence with us. A sense of inner calm amidst the clamour of daily events. An assurance of accompaniment along the loneliest pathways. A promise of hope undiminished by our deepest disappointments. An unquenchable joy defying all that oppresses us. God of grace, we come to you now to open our hearts to you. We know that words are easy to say, but not so easy to mean. You know that we find it hard to admit to ourselves, let alone to you, our deepest needs. Help us to open ourselves to you now. Show us how we are lovely and beautiful, bearers of your image. Show us how we are bruised and broken, needing your healing touch. Show us how we are ugly and cruel, distorting your image, denying your love. Show us how we are growing and blossoming, transformed by your indwelling. God of grace, we come to you now in stillness and silence to rest in your arms to enjoy your embrace, to receive your grace, mercy and love. God of grace, hear with us. Accept our words, our thoughts and our feelings. For we offer them, along with our prayers, in Christ's name. Amen.
This morning's reading is taken from Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35, and it's found in page 167 of the Pew Bibles. Some men came from Judea to Antioch and started teaching the believers, you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised as the law of Moses requires. Paul and Barnabas got into a fierce argument with them about this. So it was decided that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others in Antioch should go to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this matter. They were sent on their way by the church, and as they went through Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported how the Gentiles had turned to God. This news brought great joy to all the believers. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church, the apostles and the elders, to whom they told all that God had done through them. But some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and told to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this question. After a long debate, Peter stood up and said, My brothers and sisters, you know that a long time ago God chose me from among you to preach the good news to the Gentiles so that they could hear and believe. And God, who knows the thoughts of everyone, showed his approval of the Gentiles by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he had to us. He made no difference between us and them. He forgave their sins because they believed. So then, Why do you now want to put God to the test by laying a load on the backs of the believers which neither our ancestors nor we ourselves were able to carry? No, we believe and are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they are. The whole group was silent as they heard Barnabas and Paul report all the miracles and wonders that God had performed through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished speaking, James spoke up. Listen to me, my brothers and sisters. Simon has just explained how God first showed his care for the Gentiles by taking from among them a people to belong to him. The words of the prophets agree completely with this. As the scripture says, After this I will return, says the Lord, and restore the kingdom of David. I will rebuild its ruins and make it strong again. And so all the rest of the human race will come to me, all the Gentiles whom I have called to be my own. So says the Lord, who made this known long ago. It is my opinion, James went on, that we should not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write a letter telling them not to eat any food that is ritually unclean, because it has been offered to idols, to keep themselves from sexual immorality and not to eat any animal that has been strangled or any blood. For the law of Moses has been read for a very long time in the synagogues every Sabbath and his words are preached in every town. Then the apostles and the elders, together with the whole church, decided to choose some men from the group and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose two men who were highly respected by the believers, 
Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, and they sent the following letter by them. We, the apostles and the elders, your brothers, send greetings to all our brothers of Gentile birth who live in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. We have heard that some who went from the group have troubled and upset you by what they said. They had not, however, received any instruction from us. And so we have met together and have all agreed to choose some messengers and send them to you. They will go with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives in the service of our Lord Jesus Christ. We send you then Judas and Silas, who will tell you in person the same things that we are writing. The Holy Spirit and we have agreed not to put any other burden on you besides these necessary rules. Eat no food that has been offered to idols. Eat no blood. Eat no animal that has been strangled. And keep yourself from sexual immorality. You will do well if you take care not to do these things. With our best wishes. The messengers were sent off and went to Antioch where they gathered the whole group of believers and gave them the letter. When the people read it, they were filled with joy by the message of encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, spoke a long time with them, giving them courage and strength. After spending some time there, they were sent off in peace by the believers and went back to those who had sent them. Paul and Barnabas spent some time in Antioch, and together with many others, they taught and preached the word of the Lord. Amen. I wonder if those who were here a fortnight ago can remember the sermon. It probably seems like it's a long time ago, and it's not that surprising if you don't remember it. Most of us don't remember most of the sermons we hear. I don't think it matters particularly that we remember them. There's a story that's been doing the rounds recently about somebody complaining about ministers who um, preached these sermons that were eminently forgettable. And, you know, what a waste of time this was. And that somebody replied and said, you know, I've been married for 25 years and my wife has cooked an awful lot of meals and I've eaten them. And I can't honestly remember what it was that she cooked for me, but I know that they've done me good. (coughs) Well, I kind of hope that even if you can't remember the sermons that we preach, something in them somewhere does you some good. So two weeks ago, we looked at the events of Acts 10 and 11, which had radically altered Peter's thinking about people of races beyond Judaism and shaped the future of Christianity in a way that was probably quite unexpected for those there. It's very easy and very tempting to think that this shift was instantaneous and straightforward. And a very careless reading or not even a careless, but an unthinking reading of scripture can lead us to think, well, it was all quite straightforward. Peter had his vision, he met Cornelius, and everything changed. Actually, it was anything but easy. The reading that we've just heard refers to events that took place about 10 years 
after Peter went to Joppa and then to Caesarea. I don't know what you were doing ten years ago. I can just about remember what I was doing ten years ago because I was in my end of my first year of training to be a minister. But a long time has gone by since Peter went to Joppa and then Caesarea. It seems that despite all the persecution that is going on, the church in Jerusalem is thriving and its membership is very diverse, including, I wonder if you noticed, many Pharisees. You see, contrary to popular belief, not all the Pharisees opposed or denied Jesus. There were Pharisees who came to have a faith in him. And it's from this diverse church that people continue to go out to spread the gospel. And it was some of these early missionaries who had caused problems far away in Pisidian Antioch. These Judean missionaries had told the people it was necessary for them to obey the full law of Moses, including circumcision, in order for them to be saved. It says in the good news. That's a slight mistranslation, but it's, it's near enough. Paul and Barnabas, who have almost certainly been influenced by Peter's experiences a decade earlier, get into what the Greek puts. I think it's great this. It says, no small discord with them about this. The good news Bible says it was a big argument. No small discord. It's a lovely understatement, isn't it? They had a blazing row about this business. And the little church in Pisidian Antioch has got a problem. It's got two groups of very devout people telling them two different things. And it's all getting a little bit heated. So what should they do? And I don't know about you, but the Bible fascinates me because it puts in just a few words, things that must take ages. There must have been a lot of thinking and talking as they decided to send some people off to Jerusalem to consult with the elders and the apostles on this matter. And it's a long journey. Don't think this was just jump on a bus and get there. It wouldn't. It would have taken a long time for them to travel from Pisidian Antioch to Jerusalem. And on their way, they call in to visit a number of other little churches. And they see all the good things that are happening. And they talk about the good things that are happening in Pisidian Antioch. And that really struck me, because here they are, they've got a massive issue going on in their own church that could split the church if it's not sorted. And rather than focusing on that negative, they go and tell other people about the good things that are happening. I wonder which is easier for us, to emphasise the things that we think are wrong, Especially the things that other people are doing that are wrong. Or to delight in what's good. How do we find a healthy balance between a kind of fake jollity and whinging negativity? It seems they managed it. But it was a long journey. Eventually they got to Jerusalem and the whole church welcomed them. It seems impossible to imagine that there wouldn't have been a nice meal and some general conversation and probably a good night's rest 
before they got down to talking about why they'd come. And again, there was lots that's good, lots to give thanks to God for. But there are very real issues that need to be addressed. And as they hear what is said, those who are Pharisees, as well as believers in Jesus, express their own deeply held conviction. The Gentiles must be circumcised and told to obey the whole law of Moses. Now, because we've been conditioned to see the Pharisees as religious hypocrites, we probably hear that in a negative way. But could it actually have been that this was the deeply held conviction of some very earnest people? Isn't it easy to caricature other people of faith whose views differ from our own? And assume that everybody ought to fit that stereotype. When actually many, if not most of them, will be people of deep integrity, whose opinions can be as hard won as our own. One of the blogs I read occasionally is a woman who's converted from Anglicanism to Greek Orthodox. And her reasons are because she's totally opposed to the ordination of women. And reading some of what she says is not easy. But for her, it's a deep one position. It's too easy to draw up battle lines between people of different views, rather than listening to each other and understanding different viewpoints. She obviously hasn't convinced me she's right. And I don't suppose I would convince her that I was right. But somehow there is something about grace and learning to listen and respect one another. Now, we don't know how big the church at Jerusalem was because nobody tells us. But we are told that it had apostles and elders. So I'm guessing a group of about 20 people who met together to discuss this very complicated issue. Should the Gentiles be circumcised and obey the law of Moses or not? In an almost throwaway phrase, we are told that after a long debate, Peter spoke. You see, the book of Acts is not the minutes of the church meeting, which, if it followed typical Baptist fashion, would say, after a full and frank discussion, the following was proposed. What we've actually got is a report of the final stages of a long, careful discussion during which different voices would have been heard, different opinions raised. And the debate is nearing its end, its climax, I guess, and Peter stands up and talks about his own radical change of heart, something he says that happened a long time ago. And I find myself wondering how much his thinking has developed in that decade or thereabouts since he met Cornelius at Caesarea Certainly he seems to have a clearer theology of salvation by faith through grace and also to understand better the human impossibility of meeting the demands of the law. If Jews who have been born and brought up within the expectation of the law can't manage it, how on earth can they expect Gentile believers to do so? It was just nonsense what was being asked. 
And yet, I wonder, what are the demands we place on new converts or new church members that we can't or won't or don't fulfil ourselves? Isn't it easy to slip into a kind of legalism that undermines our claims about grace and mercy? I wonder what you got told when you were baptised or brought into church membership was expected of you. You should be here every week, twice. That you should read your Bible every day for half an hour. That you should pray for however long it is. I wonder if we keep up the things we have set on ourselves. I wonder what it is we expect of other people that we can't quite do. And after Peter had spoke, spoken, Paul and Barnabas had their turn, and it says the audience was silent. And they listened at what was happening amongst the Gentiles that showed that God was active. And then when they finished, before anybody else could say anything, James stands up and offers his opinion. This isn't James, the brother of John. He'd already been executed. This is another James. I don't know who he is. And he says it is written and speaks from the prophets. And according to the commentaries, this is Amos, Jeremiah, or Isaiah. I looked it up. It doesn't actually quite match any of them. But it's, a, it's, in, it's contingent with what Amos, Jeremiah, and Isaiah do say. What's interesting is they don't rush straight to a proof text and say, here it is, it's, this is what the Bible says, or this is what Scripture says, we must do it. It's not so simple as that. He has listened very carefully to what other people have said. And as he's listened, I think that parts of the scriptures have come into his mind. I think that's why it's not a perfect quote of any of those prophets. I expect that unless you've got a Bible with footnotes, you won't know what it is that he's quoting or paraphrasing but you will have a sense that this does fit with the message of scripture. And I also think that he is like Jesus and he is like Paul, that he's got such a thoroughgoing grounding in the scripture that he can recall the gist of it quite confidently. It's interesting that both Paul and Jesus say it is written, and they don't tell you where, and they sometimes slightly misquote it, at least according to the version we've got. I think one of the challenges for all of us is to reflect honestly on how much or how little of scripture we have read or heard, how little or how much we have thought about it, how little or how much we focus on the bits we like and ignore the bits we don't. So James says this is what the prophet says and then he offers us an opinion what he thinks ought to happen. And if we're honest, it probably sounds a bit strange to us. Restrictions on diet that exclude food offered to idols, animals that have been strangled, and blood, and the requirement to avoid sexual immorality, although he doesn't go on to say what that is, so we must be careful we don't read anything into that. Why these requirements and not other requirements? Why pick something you eat and what you do or don't get up to in your own private life. 
The commentators suggest that these restrictions go back to the Noah covenant and so predate Moses. So they come from God before the time of Abraham, before the time that the line of Israel began. Going back to a time that is this kind of a natural law affecting all tribes and all nations. This would be fair stuff to ask of the Gentiles. Although the flood stories, which are written down retrospectively, mention clean and unclean animals, there is certainly no prohibition on what may be eaten. Check what it actually says in Genesis. You may eat all four-footed things. Or what's that general effect? It's only after the time of Exodus that we get this clean and unclean laws on food. What James is suggesting is not going back to Eden, which is impossible, but actually saying, these, I believe, are God's earliest universal requirements. I wonder what we would think are the essentials of God's law. Might not come up with what James came up with. Don't think there's too much idol sacrifice going on in Glasgow. At least not time, last time I looked. But what would we see as the essentials of God's law? And how might that be different from what the church in general, or this church in particular, requires? So the apostles and the leaders meet together with the wider church. They all come back together and decide how to take this forward. Again, there's no blow-by-blow account. Rather, we are told that they become of one mind in the Greek, or in the Good News Bible, it says they all agree. And they say, who's going to go back with Paul and Barnabas as messengers, and what they're going to put in the letter? And we've heard that letter read for us this morning. They express their greetings, they restate the problem, and interestingly, they take some responsibility for it. Some of our group, they say, have troubled you. This we, or us language, seems to me to be really important. It's stressing the unity of the whole church, rather than focusing on the differences within it. Granted, these people have gone out untrained and without authority to say what they did, but there is still a sense of responsibility. This is part of us who has caused the damage. And we are all in one mind as what to do. And slip over that quite simply. It doesn't say they had a vote and 67% or 75% or 90% agreed. They were all of one mind. That's a, a true consensus. Now we all know when we try to work with a consensus, it can take an awfully long time. We have to allow time for those who dissent to work through their objections. It means that those who can quickly see what they think is a solution have to be patient with those who can't see a solution so quickly. It means that everyone's voice has to be heard, no matter how irritating that can be or how frustrating it might feel, and the views have to be weighed up. One of the dangers of our Baptist approach of voting on important issues is that if we're not careful, we rush it through. 
and we listen to the loud voices, and we don't really check that we've got a common mind. We don't check that even those whose opinions might differ are carried with us and not just walked all over. It was quite interesting, just over a year ago now, when you were planning how to vote on whether or not to call me. And Jim, who was your moderator, phoned me up and said, this is the process we've agreed, that we will, we will have a vote and we will require a certain majority. And if it's not clear, if it's a little bit under or only just over, we will have a second vote to see whether as a whole, we will endorse that decision. And I think that was really wise. It's a good model. Paul Fidd is a Baptist theologian, says sometimes it's the minority who have the word of God in their hearts, not the majority. We are in this together. When we make a decision, it's good to make sure we carry everyone with us. So, the Pharisee and the fisherman, the apostle and the elder, and the woman who sat at the back, were all of one mind that what was sent was what was required of the Gentiles. So they wrote their letter, chose the messengers, and sent them off. I wonder how the people at Antioch felt. All that long time they were waiting for a reply. What were they doing? Did they decide not to do any more baptisms in the meantime? Did they stop their evangelism program? Did they worry about what they could and could not do? Were they dreading somebody coming back with a big sharp knife to do the circumcisions? We don't know. What we do know is that when they received the letter, they were filled with joy by the message of encouragement. You see, how the message was presented was just as important as what it said. They knew that the Jerusalem church cared about them, and so they were able to hear and receive what was said. In this account, we find believers in Jesus with very different views that they saw as fundamental, working together to find a mutually acceptable resolution. Not everybody was going to get the outcome they hoped for at the start. It was going to take a lot of time and a lot of listening. All of them were going to have to think deeply and carefully about what really did matter, rather than simply regurgitating the received wisdom of their forebears. Peter had started this process a decade earlier, but even he still had some work to do. Some of the Pharisees had retained their careful patterns of behaviour whilst they were growing as disciples of Jesus. And the Gentile believers undoubtedly and understandably were put off by aspects of the law. To find a way that honoured God through all of that was not going to be easy. Not a lot's changed really, has it, 2,000 years later? There are still issues that divide Christians and impact on the effectiveness of our mission. Approaches to how we handle issues do vary within different traditions and local congregations. At one extreme, people close their eyes and hope it will all go away. 
at the other extreme, people shout loudly that if the church doesn't do what I want to do, then I shall go somewhere else to one that does do what I want to do. And then there's everything in between. And it's really easy to point a finger of criticism at other people and other churches to see the speck in their eye and miss the humongous great plank of wood in our own eyes. What does all of this actually mean for us in this church? How do we handle differences in understanding or belief? Where does tolerance slip into coexistence rather than engagement? Is it a silent majority or a vocal minority that calls the shots? Do we confuse voting with discerning the mind of Christ? Lots of questions and no answers. So how should we conclude? James listened very carefully to what everybody had to say. And he thought outside the box of his own presuppositions to find some general principles. I wonder what are the principles we would select? What is the essence of the law and the prophets? It seems to me that Jesus knew, and so did many who came to him. Two things, actually, surprisingly, are echoed in many different ideologies. Love God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. Love your neighbour as you love yourself. Working out how to live that out will take us a lifetime. But maybe it's a good place to start as we think about how we handle differences in our congregation, between our congregations, between Christian traditions. Our prayers of intercession this morning will require you to use your imagination just a little bit and will include some spaces of silence for your own prayers. Let's pray together. Just along the road from us, in the hospital, someone is clinging to life. Someone is cleaning a floor. Someone is checking a prescription. Someone is examining a patient. Someone is hearing bad news. Someone is mourning. Let us pray for them. Just along the road from us, in the shops, someone is buying lunch. Someone is working overtime. 
Someone is choosing a magazine. Someone is escaping from an argument. Someone is getting into debt. Someone is stealing. Let us pray for them. Just along the road from us in the tenements, someone is eating breakfast. Someone is enjoying intimacy. Someone is cowering in fear. Someone is worrying about tomorrow. Someone is celebrating. Someone is crying. Let us pray for them. Just along the road from us, in the park, someone is walking their dog. Someone is missing a friend. Someone is smelling the roses. Someone is playing on the swings. Someone is dancing. Someone is desperately lonely. Let us pray for them. Just along the road from us in the other churches, someone is saying their prayers. Someone is wondering why. Someone is earnestly seeking. Someone is listening from God. Someone is sure that they hear God. Someone feels utterly unloved. Let us pray for them. Here, in this church, we bring our prayers through Jesus to the God who is love, trusting that through the stillness and despite our own uncertainty, God will transform our stumbling words through the Spirit's intercession and respond in abundance of grace. Amen.